This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Christ in the Old Testament. Our scripture reading today is taken from the book of Joshua, chapter 5, verses 10 until chapter 6, verse 5. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horn in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome, glorious, beautiful, and gracious God. Nothing satisfies our souls more than drawing before you and lingering in worship. And as we've glorified you in song, we want to glorify you with our listening now, O Lord. We want to hear your voice. We want to receive from you. We want to hear your word of consolation, of challenge, of rebuke, of invitation. And our one cry is, speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, this is a strange congregation, if you're new here. It's a strange congregation because almost all of us are sojourners and wanderers from all over the earth, and we're here in Georgia, but we don't really belong here. And I think most of us have very confused feelings about the word home and what that whole concept brings up in our hearts. It took me a while to count, but Michelle and I have been married for 15 years, and we've lived in seven different places And when I was single, I think I lived in five different places, so that's like 12 different houses in the last 20 years, and where we're at now will certainly not be the last. And I think a lot of us feel this deep longing for home, a desire to find some place, somewhere where we can sink deep roots down into the ground. That feeling of caring for a piece of land, even a small little plot, that cares for you, a sense that you fit into the landscape. 
You know, a real home doesn't just belong to you, but you feel like you belong to that home. That's why one of the greatest human traumas is being displaced. Some of us are here because of our own will. We're having an adventure or we're following the call of God or pursuing a career, but some of us are here because we've had to flee the place that we belong because it's not safe anymore. We want to go back, but we can't. Listen to this poem by the Somali poet, Warsan Shire. She writes, No one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You only run for the border when you see the whole city running as well. To be displaced is a terrible thing for a human being. And in Scripture, to be displaced, to be exiled, to be forced from home, to wander the earth was part of the curse. It meant you were under God's judgment. And by contrast, to find home, to be emplaced, is to enjoy one of the highest and best creaturely blessings that God can give us. And here we are in the book of Joshua, where these dusty wanderers are coming home at last, a home they'd never seen, they'd heard dim rumors of that had been passed down from their ancestors hundreds of years ago, and they've been waiting their entire lives, these children who were born in the desert. They'd spend their whole life transient, wandering, living out of a suitcase. You know, Israel is hardly even a nation. They're just a loose confederation of tribes. They're not even sure who they are. They've escaped from their slave masters of Egypt into the desert, and they met with God on this mountain and found they were a people of destiny. They'd been chosen somehow, miraculously by God, to be his agents of God's plan to heal the whole world. They were meant to be God's people for God's purposes in God's place, enjoying God's presence. And they were summoned to the land of Canaan, led by God through the desert. This little land that was to be a second Eden, a place where God is present and people are holy and blessed and safe and flourishing. The book of Joshua is a story of Israel receiving the land from God. We're in this series we're calling Christ in the Old Testament. We've gone through the first five books of Moses, and now we're in book number six, the book of Joshua. This book of 24 chapters can be divided into four different parts. Part one is entering the land. And the story begins with the death of Moses, this colossal figure who had led the people out of Egypt and led them to Mount Sinai, and now he's dead. And Joshua, his assistant, his right-hand man, is taking his place And as you can imagine, anyone stepping into the sandals of Moses would have been very anxious. And God says to Joshua at the very beginning of this book, Joshua, be strong, be very courageous, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged, for the Lord your God will go with you wherever you go. Joshua is a smaller man than Moses, but he has the same great God that he serves, and he leads the people out of the wilderness through the river Jordan. And there's this second miracle, just like the Red Sea. God causes the waters of the Jordan to be piled up on one side, and the people cross over into the land of Canaan on dry land, following the ark. 
And the 12 tribes build a memorial of 12 stones as a reminder that our miracle-working God led us into this land. This is a miracle of God. God's power and glory and grace is going with us. And the first thing they do when they cross over is all the males are circumcised. And they receive in their bodies this physical mark that they do not belong to themselves. They belong to God. It's a mark of the covenant and God's ownership of them. And then they celebrate the Passover meal. This memorial that God had rescued them from the land of Egypt, the Exodus. The Exodus, you remember, is about the exit. But Joshua is about the entrance. The exit, the entrance. Exodus is about what God's people have been saved from, and now they're about to enter into what they have been saved for. A new chapter of God's plan is being unveiled. It's the end of one era. A whole generation has died away. A sinful, rebellious, perverse, unbelieving generation. And now it's the beginning of a new era. New possibilities. And the very next day, after they celebrate the Passover, they begin to eat from the food of the land. It's just some unleavened bread and parched grain. This is army food, just quick handfuls For people who are on the move, who are on the march, who've got a lot of stuff to do, it's not yet time for the leisurely enjoyment of the milk and the honey and all the blessings of the land, but it is the produce of Canaan nonetheless. And the very next morning, they go out of their tents, and there's no manna on the ground. These flaky, sweet little biscuits, these little wafers had been appearing on the ground every morning for 40 years. Over 14,000 mornings, the Israelites would open the flap of their tent and these wafers would be on the ground. They just collect them in their baskets and consume them. This was the food that had sustained the nation for four decades in the barren lands. And now it has disappeared. Extraordinary provision for extraordinary need. Just the perfect logistics, too. I don't know if you've ever had to plan food for a small group or a large gathering or something. And it's really hard to thread the needle. Too much food, not enough food. And here God has planned the logistics perfectly. The manna does not run out one day too early or last one day too long. God has precisely matched the food to the hunger. And now they've crossed over and the manna dries up. Does this mean that God's no longer going to take care of the Israelites? Does this mean that God's no longer going to provide for them, that it's up to them now? No, it just means that instead of the food coming down from the sky, it's going to come up from the ground itself, which is just as miraculous if you have the eyes to see. Because the eyes of faith can perceive the kindness and the faithfulness of God in the most humble and ordinary means just as much as in the gigantic and the miraculous and the spectacular. And then part two of the book, Conquering the Land. You know this book is about Joshua's methodical campaign of military conquest. There are sieges, there are ambushes, there are assaults, there are pursuits. The land is a gift from God, but it's not one to be pursued passively as the Israelites relax in their hammocks. They've got to get up and seize hold of what God has promised. They must fight to take the inheritance, confident, of course, that God is with them. He's going before them. He will give them the victory. Joshua is, it's a violent book. 
And maybe it's the most difficult book for Christians to read. I mean, if we really read this book, it can be quite shocking. One that causes a lot of stresses and problems for people who believe in God, to be honest. In The God Delusion, the atheist, the very outspoken atheist, Richard Dawkins, wrote, The ethnic cleansing begun in the time of Moses is brought to bloody fruition in the book of Joshua, a text remarkable for the bloodthirsty massacres it records and the xenophobic relish with which it does so. I mean, is God's command to wipe out the Canaanites, to destroy everything that breathes, is God actually commanding Israel to commit genocide? And how can we possibly reconcile that as Christians with the biblical witness in the Old and the New Testament about God's love for the entire world? And there's actually a sort of, there's some seeming contradictions even within these texts because on the one hand, there are verses that talk about showing no mercy and wiping out everything that breathes. And yet, you read in Deuteronomy, for example, the very next chapter will describe, here's how you should relate to people who are in the land. Don't intermarry. Don't be tempted by their idolatry. There's this assumption that there will be Canaanites in the land after Joshua happens. And in fact, there's a lot of examples in the ancient Near East with other empires and kingdoms of this kind of language being used. And it's actually stock military language. People will say, you know what, we utterly exterminated our enemy, we wiped them out, nothing survived. And yet you find out that things did survive, the civilization that was conquered did keep on going on, people were not actually literally exterminated. And it seems like the Old Testament is picking up on this stock language. It's hyperbole, it's exaggerated. This is the way that people speak of total military conquest. In fact, there's no archaeological evidence of mass graves in the land of Israel filled with skeletons of women and children and other non-combatants. There was no genocide that actually happened. The language that's more commonly used, actually, in the Old Testament even, is not of extermination, but of driving out the nations before you. Israel is the sword of God's judgment against the occupants of the land, a land filled with pagan idolatry and temple prostitution and child sacrifice and horrific evil. And the God who reigns over and who judges the whole earth and all the nations is displacing one group of people for their evil, and he's giving the land to another that he has chosen. And the book of Joshua records the steady advance of the 12 tribes into the land. Beginning with Jericho. Jericho is an interesting little city, actually. It's the oldest walled city in the world. It goes back to the year 10,000 BC, and there's a Neolithic tower that's still there from estimated to be from the year 6,800. This tower is already 5,000 years old when the 12 tribes showed up. And it's such an ancient city, people have lived there for so long because it's at such a strategic location. It's the gateway into the promised land. It straddles the north-south highway going up, the, up and down the spine of Canaan, and it's just across the Jordan River. And at this time, it probably wasn't an inhabited city, but a fortress of soldiers. And the only non-combatant Joshua describes being a prostitute suggests that. And Israel's called, strangely, for this first city there to conquer 
not to build siege ramps or catapults or trebuchets or dig tunnels. They're called to conduct this ritual march around the city to encircle it with the 12 tribes and then have the priests and the Levites in their white robes march around with the ark, blowing trumpets, until on the seventh day they all shout and the fortifications miraculously crumble and God just gives Israel the victory. The rest of the book is a bit more conventional, but Israel goes and conquers city after city and defeats king after king. But there's hints even in Joshua that it's not a completely thorough job, that though the rough outlines are completed, that there's going to be a lot of mopping up operations over the centuries that are going to challenge Israel's faith and determination to really complete the task that God has given them. But Joshua, through Joshua, the main work is done, so the third task can happen. Part three of Joshua, distributing the land. Second half of Joshua is a bit hard to toil through. All these exciting stories of battles and conquests end in chapter 12 and beginning with chapter 13. There are these long lists of geographical place names, painstakingly linked to the various tribes and the families within them. And you'll struggle to read through those chapters, as I struggled to read through them. But those chapters would have been intensely interesting to the Israelites themselves. Imagine the new owner of a property pouring over the cadastral surveys, demarcating the boundaries of his precious piece of new land. And this odd little place name with the town that's hard to pronounce is actually dear to me because this is my home. And this place is going to belong to our family down through the generations. It's precious because this is the gift that God has given us. And then there's a fourth and final part to this book. Joshua's final speech in Joshua 23 and 24. Just like Moses had a final speech, Joshua gets one too. A final exhortation to the people of Israel. And he tells them, just like God told me, be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. I'm about to go the way of all the earth. I'm going to die just like Moses did and every leader before him. But you know with your heart and soul that of all the promises that God has made, not a single one has failed. Not a single one of God's promises has failed. He has kept his word. But before I die... I need to give you guys a warning, because just as all the good things that God has promised have come upon you, so all the evil things that God has threatened will come upon you if you are faithless, until the Lord your God has destroyed you from the good lands he has given you. Israel needs to learn the lesson of God's judgment of the Canaanites. To learn that possession of the land is not some automatic, inalienable right, but that it's always conditioned on obedience, faithfulness, and perseverance in following God. This book is not some simple lesson of Israel, good, Canaanites, bad. You know, there's an interesting comparison between two characters in this book. One is an Israelite. He's a male, he's from the prestigious tribe of Judah, and his name is Achan. And when Joshua leads the attack on 
The second city of Ai, it fails because Achan has taken for himself some of the treasure from Jericho that was supposed to be given to God. And he's stoned to death for his disobedience. In the meantime, Rahab, who's a Canaanite, she's a woman, she's a prostitute, is saved for responding in faith to what God is doing. The Israelite whose faithless is destroyed, the pagan who trusts God receives mercy. And that suggests that abiding in the land, enjoying God's blessing, it's not about ethnic identity. It's about responding faithfully to the Lord. And the open question at the end of Joshua is this. Will Israel be faithful and remain in the land under God's blessing? Or will they be faithless and will they be displaced from the land under God's judgment? Will they be running for the border with the whole city? And it's a question we'll have to keep reading the Old Testament to answer. But there is a warning running through this book, this book that might seem very triumphalistic and very pro-Israelite and very nationalistic. There's a warning throughout the whole book against the easy assumption that God is automatically on the side of Israel no matter how they behave. And there's a strong hint of that in this story of Joshua's encounter with the mysterious stranger in the passage that Anne read for us. Joshua's off on his own somewhere outside Jericho at the outset of his campaign, whether it's day or night, the text doesn't say. And he looks up and he sees there's a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword. This ominous figure has just materialized out of nowhere, and Joshua is obviously very surprised to see him, and he challenges the stranger. Are you friend or foe? Are you with us or are you against us? Are you for Israel or are you for our enemies? Neither, the stranger replies. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. It's a visitor from the unseen realm. The captain of the heavenly hosts. And he doesn't fit into Joshua's understandable but simplistic us versus them categories. And it's a reminder at the outset of the story of conquest that God does not exist to serve any human agenda, not even the agenda of godly leaders. It's a total misunderstanding of God to think that we somehow own him that we've got him in our pocket, that God's presence with us means that he endorses all of our projects, military, nationalistic, political, cultural, or personal. It can be the Russian Orthodox patriarch sprinkling holy water on Putin's troops and blessing their unprovoked assault on Ukraine. It can also be me demanding that God solve all my problems, and using prayer to manipulate God to bring me into a life of prosperity and success. God will not be used by you. You do not have God in your pocket. He's not some kind of nuclear weapon that you can unleash on everything that opposes you. God has his own agenda one that far surpasses yours. And as one writer observes, God does not take sides. God makes sides. And the question is not, 
is the Lord on our side, but are we on God's side? Not, how can we get God to serve our purposes and do our will, but are we serving God's purposes? And are we saying, God, not our will, not my will, but yours be done. And to his credit, Joshua falls face down to the ground in reverence. He surrenders himself and he asks this mysterious stranger, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Give me a word of direction. Give me a word of wisdom. Show me what I must do. Tell me where I must go. The stranger gives a very enigmatic reply. He doesn't answer the questions that Joshua had, the ones that we would have had in that situation. He says only this, take off your sandals. The place you are standing on is holy. Who is this figure? The commander of the Lord's army? This person who appears elsewhere in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord? Someone who is described as being distinct from God, and yet he's identified with them. This passage immediately reminds us of Moses at the burning bush, where Moses is told to take off his shoes in the presence of the Lord God. And now Joshua is commanded to do the same thing in the presence of this angel of the Lord. And there are other angels in Scripture who are very insistent, don't bow down and worship me, worship God only. This angel not only accepts but commands Joshua's worship. I think this is a Christophany, a temporary physical manifestation of God the Son on earth before the incarnation when Jesus permanently takes on human flesh. Jesus, who in one sense is distinct from God the Father and yet is identified with him, who mediates the presence of God on earth and invites and commands human beings to bow down and worship him. The one thing that Joshua needs to do before embarking on this incredibly difficult mission, this calling from God, is to fall on his face and worship. As though to say that we are only ready to lay hold of the blessing when we've offered ourselves completely to God in worship, to be recalibrated, to be recentered, to die to ourself and come alive to God. Jesus is the divine warrior. He is the commander of the heavenly hosts. And Jesus is the true and the better Joshua. Jesus is just the Greek For Joshua, by the way, of all the Old Testament characters that God gives, the names that God gives for his son, he chooses the name Joshua because Jesus is the true and the better Joshua who conquers the land and brings God's people into permanent rest to a home they will never be exiled from, from which they will never be displaced, their forever home. Jesus is the divine warrior because he's the only one who can conquer all the evil in this world. And you know what? Jesus very much resists being used for your agenda. When he came, there were a lot of people who wanted to harness Jesus to take the Messiah and deploy him for their own projects. And Jesus refused. 
Jesus will not be used for anyone's agenda. And if you are here seeking Jesus as a way to serve your goals or to marginally improve your life, you're going to go away disappointed because Jesus will be your Lord or he will be nothing to you. And our question today is not, is Jesus on my side? How can I get Jesus to be on my side? Show me the right words to use, the right techniques to employ, the right disciplines to act out in my life so I can get him to do what I want for my own healing, my own blessing, my own success. And Jesus says to us, I know that you are anxious about many things, little children. What will we eat? What will we wear? He says, your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God. Come and bow before me in worship. And allow your heart to be so filled with my glory that you forget about yourself. That your problems, which feel so pressing and so urgent, fade away into insignificance before the glory of the Son of God. And when we fall on our face in worship, and we surrender ourselves to God, when we surrender our very selves to God, to Jesus, something wonderful happens because he takes that self that we offer to him, and out of death, he brings resurrection. Out of surrender, he brings renewal, and he gives us that self back, changed, transformed, charged with new meaning. You know what? Our prayers and our attempts to use and manipulate Jesus, the way I pray and seek God, so often reveal how small-minded and short-sighted I am. And Jesus hasn't come to stomp on our dreams and our needs and say, you don't matter. I'm going to use you for my kingdom. But he does say, there's something far more glorious that I want to give you than your petty little prayers and your tiny little desires. I am here to reveal the glory of God. I am here to flood all creation with divine love. I am here to bring all the nations into my presence, dancing, singing, rejoicing. I want to give you the kingdom. I want you to enjoy this. I am the divine warrior. I am the conqueror. I am the rider on the white horse whose name is Faithful and true, and I have come for final conquest, to destroy all evil forever, to end death, to wipe away all tears, so that you, my people, can inherit your forever home in the new heavens and the new earth, a place for all people who give me their allegiance. Yes, Jesus bids us, when he calls us to follow him, he bids us to come and die. And if you are a follower of Jesus, I'm not able to stand here and promise life is going to go easy. All your prayers will be answered. There'll be no suffering. There'll be no challenges. It's just going to be a smooth ride all the way. God may call you to go through terrible things. Where there's death, Jesus brings resurrection. Where there's loss, he promises restoration. And for all those who offer themselves to Jesus in allegiance, in faith, in complete trust, he holds on to yourself and your dreams and your desires 
He purifies them of whatever is not of God, whatever is too small, and he replaces them with something far greater, far more glorious, the gift of God himself. So that we can be God's holy people in God's place, enjoying God's presence forever and ever. Let's pray and ask God to give us the faithfulness, the courage to lay hold of the inheritance and enter into his rest. Heavenly Father, we thank you that final victory is not something that we are called to achieve. It is the gift of your grace. And we thank you, Lord, for the awesome plans that you have for us, which are not centered on us, which are centered on the glory of your Father, but which involve us, which we get to play a part in, O Lord. What a gift. And who are we to deserve these things, O Lord? All we can do is open our hands and receive from you, Lord Jesus. Lord, you know our prayers, you know our desires, you know our needs, you know our anxieties, you know our pain. We offer all those things to you in trust and say, Lord, we don't even know what to pray. We don't even know how to ask rightly. All we can say is, Lord, may your good will be done in our lives. Take us apart, O Lord, and put us back together and change us into a people fit for worship, fit to possess your land, fit to enter in and enjoy all the good that you have for us. We worship you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at TICF hyphen georgia.org Thanks for listening.